Coming up in the final edition of The State We're In, we ask, what was The State We're In? Just celebrating life against the odds, despite, you know, terrible circumstances or life-changing situations. Because it presents a point of view that you don't hear very often. And it does it in an attempt to be compassionate to people in that position. When you hear these sorts of stories time and time again on a show, I wonder, faced with the kind of choices that many of our guests have had, would I be able to do that? Someone going the extra mile, very dangerous, and it will change their life forever. It's very controversial, but ultimately it just becomes a beautiful, loving piece. Dignity, respect, compassion, sympathy, kindness. All our stories have those, those fundamentals. That's what you hope for. That's what you strive for. That's who you'd like to be. The very last The State We're In, right after this. The State We're In, how we treat each other around the world. Real voices, real stories, from Radio Netherlands Worldwide. This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is it. It's the last show. So we've decided to say goodbye to you, our listeners, by playing the pieces that we think really say something about what we tried to accomplish on the program. And so we're starting off with our big boss, Tizwi editor Greg Kelly. Hello, Greg. Hello, Jonathan. And uh, what is your pick, sir? I've picked uh, a somewhat unlikely candidate, I think, Tita Bagashaw. It says Tizwi to me... Because behind the scenes, programs are supposed to have mission statements, really grandiose terminology to define what it is that you're doing. How does it distinguish your program from things that are out there? And ours was through interviews, through conversations to show how the quote unquote other is a lot like us. And this is a woman who comes from Ethiopia and lost what was most precious to her in life and found herself after an intense period of darkness with laughter. It's an incredible journey for me. And one, when you hear these sorts of stories time and time again on a show, I wonder, faced with the kind of choices that many of our guests have had, would I be able to do that? Would I have the, the strength of character, the strength of spirit to carry on in the way that she does? I don't have an answer to that for myself. But boy, I like the, I like the way that she handled herself on her journey. And on a personal note, Greg, can I just say that when you told me that I had to interview a lady who was teaching laughter yoga, I remember. I thought it was a really stupid idea and there, I didn't want to do it. There was a little pushback there, but I have to say I chose this item too for you to do because I thought it brought out something in you in the interchanges between you and Tita. It's, it's really, really warm. Hi, Tita. This is Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, And Tita is Tita Begashaw. She's originally from Ethiopia, but now lives in Seattle. And Tita teaches classes on laughter, as in how to laugh. Now, I have to admit, I was pretty dubious at first about the whole idea of a laughter class. But maybe that's because when I called Tita, I was in a really bad mood. So before I even... You know, start in with asking you the questions. Mm -hmm. Just, could you work a little magic on me? Because I have had kind of a crappy day. If you could just take like two, three minutes just to get us in the mood, what, what would be the way to do that? The way to do that, the best thing is to start with laughter. Okay. 
Laughter is a very positive uh, exercise. Right. Make you feel good in the moment. Right. We are here in this moment. Okay. So we can start with that. Okay. So how do I, what do I do? I can see. You can start. Ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. Ho, ho, ha, 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 I have to do that? Oh, yes. Okay. So I go, what do I do? I go, ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. Ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. Oh, my God. It really is contagious. Very simple thing. <laughs> I have to say, I was incredibly skeptical. You know, I mean, when you said what I had to do, I thought to myself, I'm not going to do that. That sounds screwy. Yes, it <laughs> but is. I, but I then, and then when I started laughing, like the first four or five laughs were totally phony. And then after that, they kind of became real. Yes, it's in, it's in you. It's in all of us. We're born with that. Now when you start doing it, it becomes easy. All humankind, they can laugh. Laughter is no accent. You don't talk. People, when they see my face, they start laughing. I invite them to laugh. Very easy. Laughing comes naturally to Tita. And this is despite living through the horrors of the Ethiopian-Eritrean War and the tragic murder of her younger brother, Musfen. When I heard uh, that day, I, w- I, I don't know what to do. I ran, 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 left my apartment. I ran. My husband followed me. I almost to, you know, to kill myself. I just, I just want to throw myself when that happened. Eventually, she took a volunteer job at a Seattle hospital, which in turn led to a real job. And on one of her shifts, she found a flyer advertising a laughing workshop. She went, and she was the loudest laugher from day one. The classes got her feeling better. And now, of course, Tita gives her own laughter classes. Laughter is my art. I got it. Now I, have, I share it to other people. So I started off with you teaching me to do a bit of a laughing exercise. Yes. I think we should go out that way. Okay. Don't you think? Yeah. Don't you think? Can we laugh now? Ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. Ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. Ho, ho, ha, ha, I don't hear you. Come on. Ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. I spoke to Tita Begashaw from Seattle. And now joining me here in our studio is Radio Netherlands producer Deanna Steinbergen with her pick. Hello, Deanna. Hello, Jonathan. So what's your pick? I picked Tara and Rita. These people live in the Arab world. He is Palestinian and she lives in Gaza. And what's the story about? These people met online and they fell incredibly in love. But they never saw each other. They've only seen each other through webcam. Okay, but then they decide to get married. So what happens? They wanted to meet up. 
And it's not very、uh, easy to meet up, you know, in that area of the world. So he decided to creep through the tunnels of Gaza. The tunnels that lead surreptitiously under Gaza that are not supposed to be there, but that are there. Yeah. So why do you like this story so much? I like the story so much because it's a romantic story. I know my sucker for romance, and it's an escape story. And I've really felt this one because we had to do this interview twice, and we had to do it over the phone, partly, which we never do. And this is the first thing they said. How are you, my love? I'm fine. How are you today? Rita Ishak is 26 years old. Tahir Mushlimani is 24. They're both Palestinian, both journalists, and as you can hear, very much in love. But they have a problem. He lives in Israel, she lives in Gaza, and it's really, really hard for them to meet in person. So they resorted to the next best thing: webcams. When we first started chatting, we found out we had a lot of the same dreams and ambitions in life. I wrote a lot of poems, and she really liked that. I do remember one poem by Mahmoud Darwish, one of the most celebrated and best loved Palestinian poets. He has a poem. About a girl called Rita, and my Rita loved me reciting that poem. Nice, Rita. Tahir, when did the moment come in the relationship when you knew? I am going to marry this girl. To be honest, it was just a few days after we talked about how our feelings were mutual. So, how exactly did you ask her to get married? I followed the Palestinian tradition of sitting down with my family, and then my father called Rita's father and asked for her hand on my behalf. So, wait a minute. He didn't even ask you. Well, for God's sake, Tahir, do it right now. Will you marry me? So, but but first, have you all? You sound so formal. But yes, my love. Proposing was one thing; actually getting married was another. Remember, they hadn't even met in person yet. So they applied for visiting permits, but that went nowhere. Then they tried to meet up in different cities, like this one time at the Rafah crossing where Gaza borders Egypt. The plan was to meet in Egypt and get married there. But before I got there, I had problems at the Rafah crossing, and since I couldn't enter Gaza and she couldn't leave Gaza, I came up with the idea of creeping through the tunnels. It's really dangerous to go through the tunnels. I've heard lots of stories about people dying in them. Either they get bombed by Israeli planes, or all the tunnels just collapse. But as it turned out, it took just three minutes to walk from the Egyptian side to the Palestinian side. But when I was actually in the tunnel, the owner of the tunnel suddenly lit a cigarette. I started panicking and said, 
We need to get out of here. Oh my God! I can only imagine what you thought when that guy lit his cigarette in the space where there is no air. I wanted to set him on fire. And now it was finally going to happen. They were finally going to meet for the first time in person and get married. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Oh, it was so good to see her, and all the time we spent together online went like a sort of a slideshow through my mind. And now I finally got to meet the woman I loved so much and sacrificed so much to see. I wanted to hug her and to smell her hair. It was like I was coming home to something. It doesn't happen every day that you find someone who's truly a fit with you and loves you, and you feel the same way about them. Actually, I really never thought that I'd ever get married. But when I met Rita, yeah, she became the love of my life. I'd make any sacrifice for her. When we come back, you'll hear other Tizwi producers on their favorites, as well as the favorite that you, our listeners, chose on this, our very special last edition of the program. Stay with us. This is The State We're In from Radio Netherlands Worldwide. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today is our very last show. So we're having producers, past and present, pick their favorite Tiswi stories of all time. And joining me all the way from a studio in Sydney, Australia, is Belinda Lopez, who was with us until just a few months ago. Hello, Belinda. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm, I'm great, but I'm also a little bit sad. You know, I wish radio technology had advanced enough to be able to give you guys a big hug from over here. It's it's really sad. Well, actually, I can kind of feel it. I can feel your big hug. So I guess yeah. the, the question that I have to ask you is, what's your pick? I picked a story about a Mexican teacher. Her name is Martha Rivera, and she teaches in Monterrey, Mexico, And the story is basically about what happened when gunfire from drug gangs came dangerously close to her class of five-year-olds. It's how she acted. And it's a, a particularly spectacular piece on the show, also because we have a video that goes along with it, and we got to mix the audio from that video into the interview, and that made it kind of bone-chilling. But, but why does that story in particular stand out for you? Her humility, you know, and her joy of life against the odds – When I think about what she stands for, I think that's what the state we're in stands for, stood for. Just celebrating life against the odds, despite, you know, terrible circumstances or life-changing situations, just taking the best bits of humanity and putting them on show. And you don't always hear that in other mediums, do you? So here it is, um, former Tizwi producer Belinda Lopez's pick for our final program, Mexican school teacher Marta Rivera Alanis. Just how close were the actual shots to the classroom? Well, I think it was like a block away from the school, maybe 800 meters away. 800 meters, so really close. Así es. Yes, very close. 
And how many children were in your classroom? Dieciséis. Sixteen. Right at that moment, there were sixteen. And how old were they? Cinco años. Five years old. Really young kids. Sí, yes, very young. You had a whole group of little children, all depending on you. Is there one child in particular you remember? Yes, there was one child, Jose Manuel, who was constantly asking me, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? Is something going to happen? We know exactly what happened that day because Marta videotaped the whole thing on her mobile phone. On the tape, you can see just how terrified the kids are. They drop to the floor. Then you hear Martha's upbeat voice as she videotapes them. She sounds completely calm, but the camera motion is jerky as she pans around the classroom checking on all the kids. We created drills for the children so that they'd know what to do in case of a shooting. They knew how to follow my instructions. You guys do drills? No, tenemos un... We don't have a specific time set aside to do drills. It's just when we're painting or singing or dancing, and I'll say, floor, and they know they have to get down. But this time, it was for real. They just had to do it. They knew what they had to do. When you first heard the shots on this day, what did you think? That I had to look after my little ones. I thought, my main responsibility is to protect these children and myself. I kept them calm. I wanted to keep them relaxed and protect them and distract them from the gunfire. It was just so loud. The children were really overwhelmed. So to distract them, I started singing. What song did you sing? A song from Barney, The Drops of Rain. Barney the Dinosaur? Sí. Yes, sí. Would you, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Marta, but uh, would you sing us a little bit of the song? <laughs> claro que sí. <laughs> of course. Si las gotas de lluvia fueran de chocolate, me encantaría estar ahí. ¿Quién quiere chocolate? And the, so the kids were all singing along with you? Exactly. Exactly. They were singing along with me. While there's this automatic gunfire going on in the background. Exactamente. Exactly. Well, you know, I have to say, Marta, if I were in charge of a classroom of kids and there was this automatic gunfire going off, thundering off in the background, I have to tell you, I don't think I'd be singing a Barney song. I think I'd be terrified. <laughs> Why Barney? We always sing that song. The kids know it by heart. We sing it in music class when they're lying down and relaxed. The song goes, If the drops of rain were made from chocolate, I would love to be there, ready to open my mouth and taste them. And as they're singing, the kids normally lie down with their mouths open, as if they're ready to catch the drops of chocolate rain with their mouths. And to see them lying on the floor with their faces filled with terror, it just made me think back to all the times they were in the music room and singing that song relaxed and happy. And did it work? Did it calm the kids down? Of course. There's a little girl that you see at the start of the video. Her name is Emily. I could see her face. She looked just terrified. That really upset me. And seeing her face change as she starts smiling is what motivated me to keep singing. Seeing all their faces change from anguish, terror, and fear to smiles and calm just felt wonderful. Did you think at any moment while all this was going on that it would all become... Too much to handle? Yes, I was very scared and felt the weight of my responsibility. I knew I had to take care of the kids, but I was worried something was going to happen to them and to me. 
for mummy. How long did the gunfire last? Ay, se hace una eternidad en esos momentos. During those moments, it felt like an eternity. No, decirte, I can't tell you exactly. Minutos, Maybe about ten minutes. De, After that, a teacher came in and told us it was safe to move. The parents had begun to arrive to pick up their children, and things started to feel safe again. Did you really feel safe? Sí. Yes. I made my children feel safe, and they made me feel safe. We gave each other confidence. You're listening to the last edition of The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber. And now it's time for my pick. Last year, we interviewed Ashraf El-Hajjuj. He was a Palestinian medical student studying and working in Libya. But after the Lockerbie bombing in 1988, he was arrested along with five Bulgarian nurses. Together, they became known as the Benghazi Six and were accused of infecting hundreds of babies with HIV. But the truth is, they were political pawns used by Libya against the West. Now, I picked this piece because it shows how stories that were sometimes the hardest to listen to, like this one, were also often the most important ones to hear. It's also one of the few times I was so upset with what I was hearing that I actually fell out of my role as interviewer and just had to comfort him. I had to comfort my guest. So my conversation with Ashraf began with his description of how he was tortured with something called the magic machine. It was electrical machine. You're 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 winding your hand, so you wind yeah. it up, and yeah. it, it winds up a chair. What is it like a box or something? With it's a, a, with a small box, like like the size of a car battery. Yeah, yeah. And the first time he examined it on one of my police guards. Wait, um, what do you mean he examined it? Were there like elec- he, electrodes? He con- yes, he connect the electrodes to his but to his finger, and he start to shout, and then he said to me, "Okay, let we try this on you," and he started. Where did he put it on you, the electrons? He he connected to my toes. To toes? My, yeah. Uh, he started. And since then, I never forgot the names of the nurses. Why Why didn't you just say, okay, it's true. I'm, you know, just tell him what he wanted to hear to but, stop the torture. I mean, how I, I can say that I did something that I never did. So how long did the period of torture go on for? It's difficult to say because after that we were transferred to one... Uh, the dog uh, police station where they train the dogs. Every day I was receiving electrical shocks. They prevent me from sleeping. I was completely disoriented with time, place, and person. And, and you were in, also in a dog training center? Were you in a dog kennel? Yeah. Were you in there with dogs? Yes. They kept me there and they asked three dogs to attack me. Five of my upper teeth, they were broken mushed because of... Being, boxing. You're, you're showing like fists against yeah. your face. They, yeah. they knocked out your teeth. Yeah. And finally, uh, they start to threaten me. Either they will rape me or they will rape one of my sisters in front of me. Uh, at that moment, until that moment, I have, it was like, I don't know, maybe uh, March, maybe April. I don't remember exactly. Months. This all went on for months. Yeah. How uh, could you stand it, Ashraf? I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I reached a, a moment that I stopped believing in anything. And I was shouting to my God, why you just put me in this destiny? What I did wrong to you? What I did wrong in my life? And in one moment after they raped me, 
with the police dog. They uh, raped you. Yes. They let a dog rape you. Yeah. I'm so sorry, man. Oh, oh. It's the ugly truth. Um, I can't. Uh, I can't deny. I spoke with Ashraf El Hajuj at our studio here in Hilversum, in the Netherlands. You're listening to the last edition of The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and joining me now with her pick is Anique C., who worked with us over the last couple of years. Hello, Anique. Hi, Jonathan. You know why we're here? What's your pick? My pick is uh, Samuel Maus. He's a Israeli director who um, directed the film Lebanon about his time as a soldier in the 1982 war the, uh, between Israel and, and Lebanon. And uh, the entire film was shot from the point of view of uh, a tank gunner. Um, so you you are him. Basically. That's right. You even look through the sight half yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. And and what I like about this is that that he really puts into perspective what war is for people who have never ever had that experience and are unlikely to ever. And uh, when when you hear him talk about it, you can hear the frustration in his voice that he has had to explain himself and and what he had to do as a soldier, whether it was under orders or or making his own decisions while as a soldier. Um, to people who have, have never been in that position and having to justify himself. Now, now here's a really important question. Why does this particular piece say the state we're in to you? Because it presents a point of view that you don't hear very often, I think. And, and it, it, it does it in an attempt to be compassionate to people in that position. So here is Samuel Maus. Take a soldier, a human being, put him in a real-life dangerous situation, and he will kill in the end, he will kill. Because in, in, in a war, you are not fighting for your country, you are not fighting for your family, you are, not, you are not fighting for your parents or for your friends, you are fighting for your life. The issue is that you are in front of a situation that if you, for example, wait five seconds or ten seconds, another friend of you can die. If you, let's say, wait 20 seconds, you can die. But if you want to shoot, you see a girl on your cross. And this is not something that you can say, okay, I understand the dilemma, let me think about it, I will come back after 24 hours and I will give you an answer. I mean, it's instinct. Well, is it instinct? Because in the film, you hesitate. And that's why I choose to, to deal with the first day in the war. This is the 24 hours that your most basic instinct, your surviving instinct, start to take control. And it's a process. It, it's, it's a kind of, let's say, metamorphosis that can take 24 hours, maybe more. But in the end, you are the soldier of the war. In the end, you are an animal that someone trying to hunt. Because it, and in the end, you are functioning under your most basic instincts. And there is no other option. I will give you a, a simple example. If someone telling you on 50% of the balconies you have shooters and in the other half you have families. So if you will start to check balcony after balcony, you will find you, you won't survive more than three, four balconies. So what are your options? That's why when people start to talk about morality in war, it's ridiculous because war don't give you the options to be moral. So you will shoot in the end. 
This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Goubert, and my guest is the Israeli writer and director Samuel Maus. We're talking about his autobiographical film, Lebanon, which recounts his time as a tank gunner in the 1982 war in Lebanon. Almost all of the action in the film takes place inside the tank. What happens outside is seen through the gunner's eyepiece. He sees dead bodies, wounded civilians, soldiers, and even a horribly wounded donkey. Many of the civilians and soldiers look straight into the gunner's eyepiece, right into the camera, and therefore, right at the audience. I asked Samuel Maus why he chose such a confrontational technique. Because I understood that the only way to explain it, the only way to understand it is not through the head, but through the stomach, through the heart. You are the gunner that you will ask yourself even uh, some questions after the film. If I was in a situation like this, for example, how was I, what was my reaction? And I don't mean that I want them to feel that they are guilty. Of course they are not, but I want them to feel what is to be a 20-years-old kid inside a tank in a war situation. I, I want you to feel that you are inside the tank, and this, this is something that I guess helps. One of the things I found really surprising was that if you watch the interaction of the soldiers inside the tank, and, and also particularly the major, who's, who's their boss, um, they're really playing fast and loose with something you hear a lot about these days called rules of engagement, when you're allowed to shoot, when you're not allowed to shoot. And like, for instance, the guys in the tank are encouraged to fire at civilians by their commanding officer, and he even asks them to use phosphorus shells I believe, which is against international law, so they're asked to describe it as a it's euphemistically. A this international law, it's a joke, because everybody... Y you were asked to fire white phosphorus shells as a tank gunner? Yes. And you fired them? Yes, because someone told... Because they are, they are telling you there are... In this, for example, balcony, there is someone with missile. If, if you will drive with the tank even one meter to the left, so... Now you are here, shoot a phosphate bomb and finish with it. In a war situation, you don't think, oh, I'm going to shoot a phosphate shell. What is the meaning of this now? Let's think about it. Let's ask people, what is... You are 20 years old kids and you're trying to survive. Have any of the soldiers you served with seen it? You know, I made... Uh, a screening especially from them, for them. And uh, we saw the film, and after that uh, we continued to sit there something like five or ten minutes, I think ten minutes, something like that, without uh, saying a word. And then uh, someone said, let's go to drink. So we went to drink, and you know, this is the best solution. What did they say? We, we went to drink, and we tried to laugh. If you ask me, are you pacifist? So I can tell you that I'm a pacifist in the way that I uh, don't kill mosquito. But if, for example, someone will come to me and tell me, oh, you know, the wife of a friend of ours uh, killed herself, for example. So it must, I must be in shock now. And I'm not. And uh, I'm in shock from the fact that I'm not in shock anymore from nothing. <laughs> 
Israeli film director Samuel Maus. Still to come, the piece you, our listeners, picked as your all-time favorite. That's when the last edition of The State We're In continues in a moment. Stay with us. This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Goubert, and this is the last part of our last show. So we've invited our producers, past and present, to pick their favorite stories. And here's Mignon Aylin. Hello, Mignon. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, Mignon Aylin is the producer who's been with us longest on the show at this particular point. So, Mignon, what is your pick? You have so much to choose from. I I do have a lot to choose from, and it was very, very hard to pick because every one of the stories I love in their own special way. But I picked Don Ritchie. Don Ritchie, the Angel of Sydney, why him? Because when you think about the things that Don Ritchie did, he saved people's lives. People that were going to commit suicide, he saved them from from jumping to their death. And Don Ritchie shows just how one human can have such compassion for someone else that they don't know. They have no idea about this person. But he treated those each and every one of those people with dignity, respect, compassion sympathy, kindness, and all our stories have those, those fundamentals. That's what you hope for. That's what you strive for. That's who you'd like to be. We spoke to Donald from his home in Sydney. He told me he's talked more than 160 people out of ending their lives. He's now 84, and he's still helping, even when it gets dangerous for him, like the very first time he tried to help somebody. Well, it was a, uh, a woman... She was actually sitting outside the fence with her legs hanging over the cliff. And um, we'd been out and when we came back, I said to my wife, I'll go over and speak to the lady and uh, if I give you a signal, you ring the police. She was um, obviously, you know, insistent on on going, I think, and um, my, uh, my wife rang the police. The police broadcast was heard by some journalists and they arrived before the police arrived. And when the woman, she started to ease her backside off the cliff and that's when I got over and, and grabbed her and pulled her back. I turned the girl round. She was kicking her legs uh, and she actually got her legs on the fence and pushed. And nearly the two of us went. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, newspaper people helped me, helped me by grabbing her legs and uh, we, got, we got her back in and... Uh, but otherwise, had not had they not been there, I'd have gone with her. Can I ask you why you went over there when you saw her there? Oh, I always go over if I, you know. You can't just let them sit there or jump without trying to save them. But the thing is, I used to sell life insurance. 
I was the manager of a life insurance company. I'm a natural salesman and I say to them, why don't you come over and have a talk with my wife and have a cup of tea and what have you and see if we can work something out for you. And, you know, more the majority of them do come over. They don't all jump. Don Ritchie passed away earlier this year at the age of 85. Up next is a wonderful producer who started with us when the show was created way back in 2007. I met up with him at his flat in Amsterdam. He's our very own Chris Chambers. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> you always said nice things to me. The thing that, of course, we're here for is the very sad, very last show of the state we're in. And you've already left Radio Netherlands. You had left the show uh, to become the editor of our sister show, Earthbeat. Now, that show, just like our show, has also been closed down, which is why we're here in your Amsterdam apartment. For this, our very last show, what would you like us to play? It's a piece called Otto and Lucy. Um, It's about uh, a mother and son. He's 21 years old, or he was at the time. We did this two years ago. He has Down syndrome. Uh, Lucy's his adoptive mother. They've been together since he was a baby. Otto needs, wants sex. Hasn't had it yet. Mother determined to let him have it and doing everything in her power to make sure that he can lose his virginity. Very controversial. It caused a bit of a storm at the time. But ultimately, it just becomes a beautiful, loving piece about the bond between mother and son and the mother wanting the best for her child. Love letters straight from your heart. My friends, I always have girlfriends. Now I don't. I feel quite bad about it and a bit depressed. I'm not alone. I have modelled his life on, you know, other people of the same age, you know, within our local culture. Uh, that's what's been important because I think we've so often been telling disabled people who they are and how they live their lives. I have another girlfriend called Vicky. She's really interested in me, this one. She's very attractive. Vicky has a carers. She's a prisoner. She can't get away from them. She needs her freedom. The problem with Otto's love life is that he... There are some girls who have liked him very much and he has liked very much, but their parents or carers don't want them to have a relationship with Otto. That's what I was about, just about to say that then. And that's what's very difficult. We actually went out and her carers began to follow us and they actually wang our fingers saying, out of bounds. I feel quite guilty and a bit sad and miserable. What 21-year-old should be made to feel guilty that, you know, he's taken a girl by the hand and led her outside for a snog? You know, it's not fair. Um, there was one girl. First time we have a date together, we go out to the restaurant and I said, now, Hannah, it's time to get serious. And she says, oh, all right, all right. And I, I said, i got some choice. I'm going to be stay in bed or 
Sunday evening, stay in bed together, and we also have a, a shower together, rubbing backs, washing hairs, feet and bodies, everything. And we share a bottle of champagne. Uh, the action is a, a body language saying, No, Otto, I don't want a boyfriend. It feels like I have a, a great big knife. Feel it as big stab into the heart. It's really upset me. Keep us so near while apart. Um, I briefed Otto, he had to be fairly sensible for this interview, so he's done very well and, and actually talk about how he feels about yes. things because um, sometimes if he's in a very showing-off mood it will be just talking about sex from morning till night, won't it? I know he would. <laughs> it is fun. Being with Otto is fun. Yeah, lots of silly things. <laughs> this is more the Otto <laughs> we know and love coming out now. <laughs> Instead of the tongue-tied person. Now it's time for what you, our listeners, chose as your favourite all-time Tizzy piece. And the overwhelming choice was, as you might have guessed, Two Enemies, One Heart. This is the story of an Iranian medic, Zahed Hafland, who risked his life to save a wounded Iraqi soldier, Naja Aboud, during the Iran-Iraq War in 1982. And how nearly 20 years later and halfway across the world, the two men met again through sheer coincidence in another life-saving encounter. The story starts with the Iranian soldier Zahed. He's at the Battle of Khorramshahr, which his side won, and he's ordered to go into the bunkers and round up the bodies. And then he heard a moan. I saw a corpse. I was afraid to move it because sometimes Iraqi soldiers would put grenades under their bodies and they'd explode if you moved them. It was risky, but I decided to lift this one dead body to find the noise. Underneath it was an Iraqi soldier. He was injured and covered in blood. I thought I saw an angel, not a light. I felt a touch on my chest tugging at me, then reaching into my shirt pocket. I thought maybe an Iranian or Iraqi soldier was stealing from me, thinking I was dead. He took out my wallet and my Quran. In the Quran was a picture of my wife and son. He looked at it, then put them back without taking anything else. I knew then that he was an angel and not a devil. He could barely move, but he was trying to bring his hands to his breast pocket. He had a gold Rolex watch, uh, some money, and a Quran. In the Quran was a photo of his wife and son. And at that moment, when he was in pain and crying, I put myself in his place. I thought, I'm going to save him for the sake of his wife and his child. 
Zahed did save Naja and got him to an Iranian field hospital. When it was time for Naja to be taken away, Zahed came to his bedside. They begin to weep. Naja calls Zahed his angel and kisses his hand. Zahed kisses Naja on the head. Naja then spent the next 17 years in an Iranian prisoner of war camp. He was beaten and starved and finally released. When he arrived back home in Iraq, his wife and child were nowhere to be found, so he moved to a relative's house in Vancouver, Canada. Things didn't go much better for Zahed. His fiancée was killed in an Iraqi air raid, and during the very last hour of the war, he was taken prisoner. He's released two years later. Zahid is now bitter and volatile. He ends up on a merchant marine ship where he beats up a religious officer. Zahid knows he's doomed as soon as they get back to Iran, so he jumps ship, which happens to be docked at the port of Vancouver, Canada. Alone and depressed, Zahid tried to hang himself, but he eventually wound up in the waiting room of a center for torture victims, and there... Sitting across from him is a man who looks Iranian. They get to talking and realize they both fought at the Battle of Koramshar. The man said, I have a very special memory from there. I saved the life of an Iraqi soldier. I really hope he's still alive. And I said, I was saved by an Iranian soldier. Then the Iranian man became really interested. And as we talked, he kept asking me questions. He wanted to be sure that I was the same soldier. And we started to finish each other's sentences. He said there was a very young boy in there, like an angel coming from the sky. He didn't have a beard or a moustache. He came to me and I showed him a picture of my wife and child. I tested him by asking, why did you take the money from my wallet? And he said, no, I didn't. I asked him, did you have a Rolex watch on your left wrist? Is that right? He said, you must have heard this story from someone. He said, my brother. I said, no, that young boy is me. It was me. We started talking loudly. We were so excited talking to each other in Persian. I just could not believe that this is the same Iraqi soldier whose life I saved 20 years ago. I was so excited. I mean, in spite of my throat, I've been screaming so loudly and crying. I found a certain reassurance. I saw how great and glorious the world could be. And how small. I hugged him and I kissed him and then I found the confidence I'd lost. I was so happy that I didn't hang myself, so happy that I didn't die. Finding Naja was a rebirth for me. I was sure that I didn't die, that I was kept alive for a reason. Zahed, it sounds like you're saying that bumping into Naja saved your life. Yes, this time he saved my life. Naja is my angel too. 
He is my blood brother, he is my father, he is my essence, he is my family. And Nadja, you thought the light from Zahid's flashlight was an angel. Is Zahid still your angel? Yes, he is my angel. Now and forever. Every time we meet, it's like we're meeting for the first time again. He is very precious to me. Zahid, uh, Naja, the two of you have, the both of you have lived through horror. You've lived through the depravity of war. Each of you has nearly died. You, you guys more or less lost everything. You lost everything. And yet you ended up saving each other's lives. This is one of the most astonishing stories I have ever come across in my life. So my question to you is, what mark has this incredible set of events left on the two of you? He's more than a brother to me. As much as I love my son, as much as I love my own brother, I love him more. Even more than my son, my brother, or my father, I love him. For me, this has cleaned away all my tragedies, and my heart is clear. We are now one heart and two bodies. Two enemies, one heart, your favorite Tizwi piece ever. And that's it for us, forever. Probably. We're working to see if we can get a last-minute reprieve, and we'll let you know how that works out. But in the meantime, our archive on TSWI.org should stay live for a while. Every single one of our shows is still available on iTunes, completely free of charge. And stay tuned for more news about our archive. We're trying to find a permanent home for it. And we'll also keep using Facebook, that's facebook.com slash TSWI.org, to let you know what's going on with the people who worked on the show, and we'll give you updates from time to time. I'd just like to say that the state we're in has been the single greatest experience of my professional career. I've been moved to tears to read the now nearly 1,000 messages of support you people have sent over the last month, and it's meant a lot to everyone who works here. So let me end by quoting the great philosopher Dr. Seuss, who once said, Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. I know I'm smiling. There's no love song finer, but how strange the change from major to minor. The State We're In was produced by Mignon Aylin and Deanna Steinbergen. Sid Fordham was our webmaster, Greg Kelly was our editor and teacher, and I'm Jonathan Gruber. It has been an honor to be your host these past five years. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.